Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Paul Kimball's joining us as guest host this week as David Biedney takes a further hiatus from the show. The big question that's in my mind here, especially now when we have all this stuff going on in the media in America, you know, we have the conservative media, the liberal media, we have supposedly the moderate media, and everybody putting a spin on what's going on. So before we discuss how UFOs may be treated or paranormal subjects by the media, Paul, what about the Canadian media? How does it look from Nova Scotia? Well, hi, Gene, and hi to the Paracast listenership. You know, the media is the media. In Canada, we have a uh, what you would call a liberal media, and uh, we also have a conservative media in the sense that uh, there's a national newspaper called the National Post that tends to take more conservative positions, although most Americans would probably find them our conservative positions to be somewhat centrist. And uh, then we have other newspapers that take what we would call a, a more liberal or centrist position, which most Americans would probably find quite liberal. So, you know, the terms conservative and liberal and centrist vary not just from country to country, but even from region to region. If you're watching news in New England, which we get here, I think you'll find that it's probably quite different than the news that I see when I travel to Texas or New Mexico or places in the Southwest where you might expect to find a more conservative culture just generally. So, you know, Depending on where you are, there's going to be differences in reportage, as it were. But in how, in terms of how the UFO subject has been treated, I, I've never really discerned a difference between, say, Fox News, which you would consider, I suppose, to be a conservative outlet, and you know the New York Times, which is generally considered to be a more liberal outlet. I think they generally, if they cover UFOs at all, or a UFO story at all, they generally cover it all in the same way. I don't think there's a conservative or liberal angle to UFOs, unless maybe a politician, you know, like Fife Symington gets involved and perhaps he's of a political party, and so maybe the other side takes a swipe at him. But generally speaking, I think the media covers, when they do choose to cover UFOs, uh, in North America at least, covers it pretty much the same way. Conservative, liberal, centrist, doesn't really matter. Um, they There's hardly no ever then at all. conservative or liberal way of laughing at UFOs. The laughter yeah, no. is the same despite the political persuasion. Pretty much. The only thing that might change is the accent in the speech pattern that comes before the actual laughter. So um, a Texan would laugh and talk perhaps differently than someone from Boston and certainly differently than somebody from Ontario or, or Alberta. But the laughter is the same. And generally speaking, they, they do treat it usually with at least a wink and a nudge and some form of, if not outright laughter, you know, well, okay, we kind of have to report this, but we don't take it terribly seriously. There are media outlets. Every now and then you'll see something that's a little different. Um, the United Kingdom, and I think this might have something to do with Nick Pope's profile over there. The United Kingdom seems to take it a little more seriously, but I think that's largely because they're in the midst of the Ministry of Defense releasing documents. So there, there's an actual news story there. You have the government getting involved and saying, well, look, here's all these documents. We ran investigations. There's nothing to it, but at least that's a news story, and you have to take that kind of seriously when the Ministry of Defense is sort of throwing these, or not throwing these, but releasing all these documents. So I think the story is different over there than what the story is over here, at least at the moment. Now, if you had that kind of release of documentation in the United States, 
then I think you might see the story change. The problem is in the United States, you've pretty much got, you, you had that release of documentation years ago that Project Blue Book files have been in the public record for decades. And so when people talk about disclosure, well, it's happened, folks. I mean, the kind of disclosure you're seeing in places like New Zealand and the United Kingdom and Canada, that's already happened in the United States. All those documents that their major investigative body did have been released. You can go to a, a website called the Project Blue Book Archive and uh, and you can go through all the Blue Book records, many of which haven't really been looked at yet, even though they're there. So the story's different in different places, too. I don't think it's a conservative and liberal thing. I think the story is what drives the response. And if you have, as you do in the United Kingdom at the moment, or even in New Zealand, a release of documentation from an official source, well, that gets taken a little more seriously than maybe a story of... Um, three guys driving down the highway outside Lubbock, Texas, one night after having had a few, and they see some lights in the sky. And then, you know, between those two extremes, the story, there's always a different story in there. So Stephenville, when the Stephenville case happened, and, and I don't know what Stephenville was, but I think that got some serious reportage. You know, not quite as serious as the war in Afghanistan, but in the UFO world, everything is relative. So I think that got some serious reportage. I think the O'Hare case a few years ago got some serious reportage because those were cases, whatever they were, whatever happened, that involved um, credible people and some interesting things going on in, in Stephenville in a very interesting place. And in O'Hare in a very interesting place, you know, the president's ranch and uh, one of the world's major airports. So I think that's the story. And I think that's why you saw something more than just the usual ha-ha-ha, at least initially when it came to those cases. So I think it's the story, Gene, that drives it, not any political persuasion. What about the stories that there may be some kind of conspiracy between the, the government and the press to keep the information from being disclosed. We did a show about that a few weeks ago. Well, I, I would say that those kind of stories, from my perspective, are exactly why the media laughs at the UFO subject, because as far as I can tell, there isn't a hint of any solid evidence that would point to, first of all, you'd need, okay, you have to have aliens. The aliens have to have talked to the United States government. It's always the American government. Nobody ever complains about the Burundian government or, you know. Well, you the, know, the other uh, thing is here, why would the aliens talk to the Burundian government? It has to be the president of the United States, the CIA. Which is very American. I love my southern cousins, but um, as all Canadians do. But the United States has a very insular look at itself. And if it isn't happening in the United States, well, obviously it can't be happening elsewhere. And if aliens are coming here from Zeta Reticuli 1, 2, or 3, surely they would stop in at the White House or the CIA headquarters before, I mean, why would they go to Burundi? Well, but the, the thing other thing is, is here, they might actually be devoted right now to helping Barack Obama give up the smoking habit. Exactly. That's, that's entirely possible, although um, somehow I doubt it. But, you know, if aliens were coming here, as, as Stan Friedman is often fond of saying, he has no idea why they'd be coming here, and then he lists 30 or 40 reasons. Well, maybe some of those reasons, they would look at us and they would say, well, you know, to us, Burundi is as developed as, you know, the United States, um, as, as developed as, as Argentina. They're all the same to aliens from Zeta Reticuli because to them, we're sort of all, at best, dogs. You know, we, we, maybe we understand... 30 words that the aliens can speak. So it's it's very hubristic of any particular nationality or any particular group of people to say, well, of course, the aliens would want to talk to us because we're the most advanced race or culture or civilization on this planet. Well, yes, maybe to us. But well, the other thing is here in the movie Star Trek, 
for the voyage home, they want to talk to humpback whales. And if they couldn't hear a response from the humpback whales, they'll destroy the planet. Which is a bit far-fetched, but what they were trying to get at, I think what they were trying to get at in the Star Trek, in that movie, which I think most people consider to be probably the best of the original series movies that were done, is... You know, there's things going on in our planet. There's there's all sorts of other life forms here. Who knows what the aliens, if they are aliens and if they are coming here, who knows what would interest them? I don't think that if aliens from Zeta Reticuli are coming here, the inner workings of American health care and the congressional system or, you know, um, in Canada, provincial versus federal jurisdiction questions, or even things like war and peace on this planet. I, I'm just not convinced that those would be terribly interesting to them. Uh, I think if they're here, they're here for, for other reasons, and it might not have anything to do with us. And that's the kind of thing that people like Jacques Vallée would look at, and he would say, well, look, you know, if it is aliens from Zeta Reticuli, that's the least interesting of the possibilities. Um, people like Mac, my, my good friend, the late Mac Tonys, I think a lot of the things that drew people like them away from the extraterrestrial hypothesis was the questioning of, well, look, if they've been here for 50 or 60 years, why haven't they made themselves known? I mean, what possible reason would they have for not making themselves known? If I walk into a house that has three dogs, I don't sort of try and walk around the dogs so that the dogs don't, I mean, assuming I'm a friendly, you know, I know the people in the house, I don't try and hide myself from the dogs. I just ignore the dogs, but you know, I'll walk right by them. And I, I don't think there's, they, people like Mac and, and I don't want to speak for Mac or, or, or Valet, but I, the impression I always get from them is they look at the extraterrestrial hypothesis and say, well, that's the least sensible of the bunch of the paranormal hypotheses. It doesn't really make any sense because surely something would have happened by now. Why would they just keep flitting about in the atmosphere for 60 years or, or longer? And then you get into the abduction stuff. Well, why would they abduct thousands or millions, depending on who you talk of, people? As Kevin Randall said to me once, surely you could take a sampling of the population, <laughs> you know, in about five years if you're an alien, take 100 people from all corners of the earth, and, and then you're done. So maybe there's 100 alien abductions, but then why would you keep abducting people over and over and over again? Until they get it right. Yeah, well, well, until they get it right, then how the heck did they get here in the first place? Apparently, they can build very good spaceships. They can fly between planets. Except they crash they get, in Roswell and they crash at Aztec. And Kecksburg and everywhere else. And then when they get here, they're such lousy scientists that their, their experiments have to go on for 60 years. And they have to keep repeatedly abducting people and thousands upon thousands of people, too. Which they get paid for each abduction. I got the answer. And Every abduction, the they get paid in credits or whatever the Zeta Reticuli monetary system is, they get paid for it. So if they come back and say, hey, we hijacked, we abducted 100,000 Earth people, they get paid for that. But if they well, only then, hijack, you know, a thousand, they only abduct a thousand people, well, that's not good enough. They'll be replaced next time. Then they're just like police officers during what we used to call ticket month when I worked with the RCMP one summer. Um, you, you would have one month where you, that's the month you have to write all your tickets because your entire yearly budget for traffic um, patrol is based on that one month. They prorate it. So maybe the aliens show up. That would explain UFO waves. You know, every seven or eight years, it's, it's human month for the aliens. So they have to show up and abduct so many humans or else their budget gets cut. I have, I have no idea. Alien logic. Oh, well. Speaking of any logic, you've assembled a couple of really fascinating guests for us today. Would you tell our listeners who they are and what they're about? 
They're from the other side of the pond. They're from what's left of the empire. Dave Sadler and Steve Mara from the United Kingdom, a lovely town called Congleton, just south of Manchester in the uh, sort of central England area. They're researchers with a an organization called the Unknown Phenomena Investigation Association, or the UPIA, and they between them, I think they have, and we can ask them, but I think they have about 30 or 40 years between them of investigating all sorts of paranormal phenomena, from ghosts to poltergeists to, to crypto creatures to UFOs. You know, pretty much, if it's a paranormal subject, they've looked into it. I had met Dave a couple of years ago when I was speaking at a conference in Manchester put on by Stuart Miller, who uh, ran UFO Review and then the Alien Worlds magazine. Good guy. And uh, we, Dave and I just hit it off because he's, he's, he strikes me a lot like me. He doesn't take himself seriously, but he takes the subject seriously. He's skeptical, but he's open-minded. So I, I kind of found a, a kindred spirit in him. And, you know, they take their investigations seriously. They work hard at it. And they don't jump to conclusions. And so when we needed local people in the United Kingdom to partner with Holly Stevens and I when we were doing a few episodes of Ghost Cases over there last year. Uh, Dave was the guy I called and we partnered up with the UPIA. So they were in four episodes of our television series and they they were fantastic to work with. So I thought, well, let's introduce them to folks. They've been on radio in the United Kingdom, but they I don't think they've ever been in North America or anywhere else you know, beyond that. So let's introduce them to folks in the rest of the world because I think they're the best paranormal researchers that I've run across in the UK. And I say that with no slight to Nick Pope or Nick Redfern or Dave Clark, who are, are all friends of mine. I think Dave Sadler and Steve Mara and their people at the UPIA are just are top-notch. So, um, so that's why I suggested them to you. Dave Sadler, Steve Mara, coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. And here we are with Paul Kimball, Gene Steinberg, and tonight... Dave Sadler and Steve Mara calling us from Congleton in the United Kingdom. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi, Dave. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Good, good. I think what I was thinking we'd do would be introduce you to the good people of the Paracast who listen to the show and ask each of you in turn, I, I mean, I know your background. I, I 
know Dave's background very well. <laughs> um, but uh, I was thinking, uh, he, you know, obviously he, there are things here that are not stated that we'd like to learn, but that can't be done on the in the province of this radio show. It's I'm an sure entirely different Facebook or something. Yeah, it's an entirely different show, um, R-rated. But um, yeah. Uh, I was thinking each of you, uh, maybe we can start with Dave and then Steve, you can follow up. Mm -hmm. But just describe a bit about the UPIA and map it. And who are you guys? How you got into paranormal research? What's your background? You know, give us the uh, the bio of Dave Sadler and Steve Mara and your your organization. Certainly. Uh, Well, there you go. My name's Dave Sadler. Uh, I've been involved in the paranormal investigation, ufology, and cryptozoology and such like now for approximately coming in close to 14 years. I originally started from a basic interest, boredom, and shooting from the job I was uh, taking at the time, and I had a lot of spare time, so I decided to fill it, and I found that I was my interested interest at the time uh, was big into the paranormal, so I delved into it a little bit. Luckily found the BITC course, which uh, was run by Mr. Mira, how we met. Uh, from there, I continued my learning of the subject, uh, the basics of the subject, uh, formed the UPIA in 1998, and from there, we've, uh, we took part in a hell of a lot of active investigations uh, throughout the country. In fact, we took on in some UFO cases throughout the world, which we've been able to uh, to solve, especially regarding footage that's been sent over and, and images and such like. Nowadays, uh, the team is a more compact team. There's 10 active members, Steve included. And uh, some of the work that we're doing, I think, uh, for Eclipse is most of a organization similar to the UPIA in the UK. Uh, we, we've, we've taken steps forward greatly in, in many different areas. And that's not down to myself, that's down to the people within the UPIA. Uh, so, yeah, we look at uh, haunting activity, ghosts, apparitions, that sort of genre. We look at UFOs, we look at big cats. And there's lots of little different areas that we look at as well. Uh, there's a lot of things that come in that we have to obviously look at within the, the whole paranormal world. So uh, that's me and that's the UPIA. So Mr. Mr. Barra? Yeah. <laughs> go go uh, ahead, well, yeah, well, I pretty much started um, very young, as you can say. My father was um, a UFO investigator. He also had a large interest in the other subjects of the paranormal. And I, and I had a, a huge um, wardrobe full of books. And uh, I think from around about eight or nine years old, I used to pull the odd book out and have a look through. Those those type of books were the, the, of those days were the um, the Eric von Daniken of books type things, the old uh, Chariots of the Gods and Brad Steiger's UFO books and things like that. And he pretty much got interested uh, in the subjects of UFOs. My dad had a, a, a telescope and would uh, often take me out of my bed in the middle of the night, unfortunately, to look at the stars <laughs> and the planets. And, uh, and many a time we find ourselves up on the moors on a, on a night looking up at a clear night sky. So it was kind of in the blood from a very early age. Um, and when I left school, I still had the interest and wanted to to find out if there was a little bit more to what I'd read in books. Um, but I was caught up in, in regards to a lot of training in regards um, electrical engineering, and, and then I was hired out as a contract worker for um, NATO for, for a short length of time. Uh, but through the process of those years, I um, was reading and, and finding out on as much as I possibly could on the subject. And uh, around about 20 years ago, I mean, I've been in the subject now for about 25 years, uh, but about 20 years ago, I opened up my first organization, which was the Cheshire UFO Group. 
and then I became um, an investigator with BUFORA, the British UFO Research Association, and became a regional investigative coordinator with them and helped you to their course. Uh, over a period of time, I became involved in numerous organizations through the UK, and around about the 1980s, the latter 1980s, a lot of people were becoming interested in the paranormal. There'd been a number of television programs on the TV, such as the X-Files, and people more interested in, in the paranormal side of things, as well as UFOs. So a lot of organizations, like my own, um, started thinking about investigating the paranormal as well. So we ended up investigating both UFO and paranormal phenomena. And I, I took over an organization which was run by David Reese. It had been formed in 1974 called MAPIT and been running that today, basically investigating and researching the paranormal, all aspects, be it UFOs, uh, supernatural uh, or cryptozoological. Uh, we also run the British Investigators Training Course, which is a, a course which was wrote by myself and numerous other academics from around the world. Uh, and I think today it's, the, it's probably the most recognized course in the country for people who wish to learn a little bit more about how to investigate and research the phenomena uh, from an investigative point of side, uh, or, or even if they have their own organization and want to put their own details together uh, um, and do uh, their own form of investigations. Uh, and since then, basically, we've been involved uh, in, in, in the media aspect of it all as well. So we're, I'd say about 25 years in total uh, I've been at it. And we'll get into a lot of those cases from ghosts to UFOs to poltergeists um, as the show goes on. But I just want to, to clarify, like, Steve, you have a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you have a bachelor's degree in science, don't you? I have, I, yes. I have yeah, a bachelor's and, degree in science, yes. And, and one of your other guys, Paul Reeves, who worked with us, he has a, a science degree as well, chemistry, I think. I believe so. Yeah, that's right, chemistry, yeah. yeah. He's a, so, a lab manager for a well-known British pharmaceutical company. So you guys, and this sort of would lead me into um, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, um, just as some preliminary stuff before we start talking about the cases and, and the things that you've encountered. And one of the things that impressed me a great deal when I went over, uh, as I was saying to Gene before um, we called you guys up, is the sort of skeptical, scientific, but open-minded approach you guys take to investigations. And the, the fact that, that at least some of your members have a scientific background, talking to Paul and Steve, when that you could see that come into the investigations. So perhaps you guys could describe a bit about your research methodology. Um, if I call you from uh, Shocklack, for instance, and say, you know, hello, I think my house is haunted. Where do you take it from there? Like, how do you, that's my word. That's the worst British accent you'll ever hear. Let me interrupt here, folks. I can do something that's even worse, oh. but I'm not going to really inflict that upon any of our listeners, I know, because we believe that they have put their faith in this program, and we don't want to encounter anything like that. <laughs> Crikey. That's, no, wait, that's Australian. Oh, well. That's, that's um, the very family guy, Paul. There you go. Yeah. Without my lousy British accent, talk a bit about your research methodology, how you go from A, somebody calling you up or contacting you, to, you know, through the investigation process, the kinds of equipment you use. I know, Dave, when we were there filming ghost cases, um, EMF meters, which a lot of people think are ghost detectors, um, courtesy of certain television shows, um, perhaps we can get into a whole bunch of that, of just the equipment, the way that investigations are run, the methodology. You know, how, how should it be done properly? Because you guys, I think, do it properly. So, so let us know how you do it. Well, to be honest, uh, first and foremost, I wouldn't class myself personally or the UPI as skeptic. 
uh, classes as realists. We use reality. Uh, let's face it, as you said about the EMF meters, you go around waving an EMF meter, nobody naturally knows what they're using it for. They're not going into the study of the subject, they're not going into the study of the EMF meter in the first place to find out actually what EMF, if you are detecting EMF, what it's causing. And obviously that is causing a physiological effect. It's causing effects on the, the brain, for instance. So we're going to go into it. We've got to find out more or less everything to do with EMF and, and what its effects on the human body is. Because ghosts don't emit EMF. That's just bunkum. So anyway... Um, There's another word for it, by the way, but we can't do that on family radio. <laughs> How about balderdash? I'm, I'm That's a very, it, isn't really balderdash am. a good phrase for that? Boulder Dash, yes, we'll use Boulder Dash. By the way, the methodology for a case, if a case came in, the first thing that I personally would do, I would send a, a research request out to the team. We've got um, several people in the team who, who would blow you away with the amount of information they're able to find in an instance overnight. One person, well, both people, mainly Phil and Kirsty, just don't go to bed and sit there and research. So uh, the research request would be put out. We'd go on to interview the, 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 the clients, the witnesses. We'd find out as much information we possibly could from them, uh, going into things as, as deep as what drugs they're using, uh, prescribed drugs, or in some cases, unprescribed drugs, uh, and we will see what side effects that has again on the human physiology. We will just absolutely ask them as many questions, we'll get to know the people as, as best we possibly can and find out as much information as we can. Steve, do you want to take it from there? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, with investigation is coming in, I mean, sometimes we we do have um, space for investigations where they come in quite regularly and I think there's a process that we have to take on board such as warranting an investigation. I mean sometimes a lot of the things that we do get reported is usually a lot of just information such as some person saw something uh, a number of months ago. The unfortunate thing is we're investigating UFOs and you're usually investigating something that's already happened and the chance of you actually seeing it again in the vicinity is usually very low. Uh, investigating the paranormal is a little bit different because you do actually have the probability of being able to see something or experience something uh, a, a second time around. So warranting investigations is quite an important issue for us because uh, we have to look at them and say which ones have the priority and which ones don't. Of course those which involve children and, and um, traumatic or severe frequency incidents obviously go straight to the top of the top of the list because uh, there's a necessity to investigate those first. Uh, and we go through, like Dave has mentioned, a process of research, a process of um, if there are psychological conditions which could act be attributed to the experience. Uh, is there a physical thing? Is, uh, as people reported, um, physical interaction of some, of some sort. We have to warn uh, on the investigation. We also have to work out what equipment is going to be required for that location. If it's indoors, if it's outdoors, do we have power? Sometimes we don't have power. We have to run an on-site investigation through gen on generators and light holes. Uh, and, and basically making sure that uh, the whole thing comes together in a, in a, in a proper manner, that uh, we don't waste our resources, because a lot of people tend to go out there and investigate first and then ask questions afterwards. Uh, I think we kind of do things the opposite way around, and the reason for doing that is, is solely that we, we sometimes find a rational explanation without having to spend so much time on particular investigations. So we have, that's the process of our investigation, I'm sure Dave would agree with that.
Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Dave Sadler, Steve Mara, and we're joined by our special guest co-host, Paul Kimball. Steve has a book out called Strange Happenings, Memoirs of a Paranormal Investigator. Yeah, and I guess that's, that's right. where you tell all about your secret life, whatever it that is. is. Yes, yes. It's, I think there's a, there's a number of uh, investigations uh, from my first sort of ten years in that in the book, uh-huh. um, which covers everything from UFOs to paranormal to strange and profound things. So it's quite an interesting read. And Dave, you got a book out called Paranormal Reality: Ghosts, UFOs, and Pussy Cats. That's correct, yeah. What are the pussy cats? What are they? Are they going to meow at us now or what? Well, hopefully so, hopefully so. It's it's not been unknown for us to tin a kitty cat out with us on an investigation for a, a big cat. Uh, yeah, basically the, the, the big cat thing in, in the UK, where in the US and I don't know about Canada, you, you've got obviously a lot of wildlife, a lot of pumas and that in the wild. In the UK that's, that's basically unknown, so we've got a classification of an ABC, an alien big cat, alien being obviously alien to the terrain and uh, from the amount of reports that we we get each year we're, we're lucky to uh, at the weekend the team unfortunately I wasn't available to go out the team were out and about in Runcorn in Cheshire looking at a case of a big cat so yeah it, it looks at big cats it looks at the paranormal it looks at UFOs and it looks at crop circles one of the cases that me and Steve done ooh, good 10 years ago now evolving a, a crop circle in North Wales again not dissimilar to Steve's it's uh, it's more case files there's a few it, I think my a bit more light-hearted than Steve's, uh, as you can tell by the cover. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's had some good feedback up to now, yeah. All right, I gotta understand about the pussycats, though. I'm still not getting this too clear. <laughs> well, pussycats well, is, is what, in, what in the UK we call pussycats, as in the little tabby house cat. Uh, so it's just a, a play on words for the little the light-heartedness of it. Yeah, because in, here in the UK we have um, a number of reported incidents where people claim to have seen large exotic type cats such as pumas, panthers, so on and so forth. Um, which is usually you could expect to be a rarity in the UK because they, they obviously do not uh, they're not normally found in this country. However, there is a lot of speculation that some of these cats were released in roughly around about 1976 during the animal um, the exotic animals register and act that came into force. And maybe that some of them have been um, got out of zoos or been pets and been let loose. And occasionally they, they, they end up with a newspaper article saying somebody has seen something quite like a puma or a panther. So we tend to go out and investigate. Them. 
those things, just for the cryptozoological side, so that we, we end up with a database of information uh, which we can provide to numerous other organizations around the country in hope of protecting these cats, which is the first thing, uh, and secondly, to stop hysteria as well, because most of the time people do get fearful of these animals, and when, uh, when in fact, uh, I think the cats are probably more feared of, uh, of humans, to tell you the truth. <laughs> now, are we saying then that these cats are not really paranormal, but just something that's natural to our planet, but maybe we don't know enough about them? As Steve said, it's a rarity in the UK. Uh, in the US, obviously, you have cougars in the back garden a lot. In the UK, we only have them in zoos. Uh, they're, they're not the natural climate. The terrain in the UK is it's a no-go area. We've not seen things like that for, for since medieval times. So nowadays, when a big cat is reported, it is a rarity. It's something of consequence which we follow up on. And as I said earlier, it's it's one of them areas we class in the UK as a cryptozoological in nature, uh, and it's an area that obviously from the UPIA, Unknown Phenomenal Investigation Association, we, we take seriously and we look at them cases. And, and, and to be honest, it's a relief and it's, um, it's nice to get out into the wild, try, trying to track these these animals as, as the team did at the weekend. It's a relief from the, the norm, the ufological or the, the, the paranormal. So what you're saying then, Dave and Steve, is there isn't um, because a paranormal aspect because there are people who would assert that there is a paranormal element to the big cat phenomenon and I, and I don't mean just cryptozoological, but I mean everything from alien big cats, as you sort of mentioned, Dave, but tying in, and not just cats, but the devil dog phenomena, which my friend Nick Redfern has written about, the legends of the, the, the hounds of hell in the United Kingdom. So what you're saying is you think that the, the, the big cats is, is something that can certainly be explained without resort to paranormal phenomena? Certainly. Uh, absolutely. As Steve said before, in 1976, in the UK, the government uh, performed a, uh, a new law, uh, the Exotic Animals Register, where basically people in them ties, when you see films like Austin Powers in the swing in the 60s, you get people walking around with the big tiger on a lead. That was outlawed. People weren't allowed to do that. They, they had to have them caged. They had to have certain things set around them that they were able to keep these animals. And a lot of people didn't want to go through the process of abiding by these laws and release them onto the wild. The best known case in the UK is the uh, the Beast of Exmoor. Uh, that's quite well known worldwide. For instance, that's that's probably the main one. We recently had a, quite a major one, the Beast of Bookshaw, which ended up being a hoax. Nowadays, we believe these animals are capable of living in the wild. It's obviously that when people do see them um, in the UK, they're quite shocked by that, and they feel they need to report that to somebody because, hey, they don't know if these big cats are dangerous or not. So, again, as Steve said, we're, we're trying to protect the welfare of the animals as well as documenting a database of sightings throughout the UK and working with other organisations to see what sort of population of the animals are in the UK. And does this sort of highlight a, a broader point, which is because cougars, mountain lions, are not indigenous to the United Kingdom. They would seem, if you were in your backyard in Yorkshire and saw a cougar going by, you would be quite startled, I suspect. Whereas if you were in New Mexico, in, in the American Southwest, or in Alberta, in Canada, um, it might not be an everyday occurrence, but you wouldn't be surprised to see one. You'd know what they are. Does that sort of maybe explain why some people in the United Kingdom, at least, would look at those things and maybe ascribe a paranormal explanation to it because it's something outside their their regular day-to-day -day routine of what they might expect to see? And does that speak to a broader th point about how maybe a lot of what we see that we would describe as paranormal 
if other people saw it, they wouldn't describe it as paranormal because it's something they're more used to. Yeah, Steve? I think basically what, what we're saying is that like, I think it all kicked off with a misinterpretation with the media to tell you the truth. I mean, the term alien big cat, a lot of people sort of misread that as to thinking that it was something to do with extraterrestrials or UFOs. In, in fact, it just meant that it was being, it was alien to our country. We'd not normally <laughs> have such animals. And of course, a lot of people picked up on that and thought it was something really profound. In fact, our, our resources and when we spend time investigating big cat sightings, it's mostly um, to assist other organizations in the finalizing the statistics of how many cat sightings there are across the country. When people do see them, it usually makes headlines and it usually does cause a bit of a stir. Um, we do get reported incidents every year come through, but uh, when you get a group of people, it's obvious that you know maybe something like uh, a large cat has been seen, and it's no surprise to probably find them in the UK because now there seems to be evidence to support the fact that they are breeding and living quite comfortably throughout the country. Um, the unfortunate thing is, is that it's usually end up getting a lot of um, silly things put into the local newspapers and people are, uh, misinterpret what they actually mean by the saying of, of alien big cats. It reminds me of, uh, I know Nick Redfern and I went to Puerto Rico a few years ago and researched the, uh, and he's been there several times, the chupacabra phenomenon. And oh, yeah. the researchers that we talked to in Puerto Rico said, and these were people, you know, paranormal researchers, but they said, look, the general prevailing consensus here is that these might be lab animals that escape the, the American government as a number of, of secret facilities in Puerto Rico, military and otherwise, mm -hmm. that might have escaped, or they might have been animals, pets, that would have escaped from people or been let loose. And, you know, they go roaming through the jungle and they have to survive. So, yep. But the legend, then that mix in, in Puerto Rico, that mixed with legends they already had of, of vampire-like creatures called the Mocha Vampire. And all of a sudden, and then the alien thing, I don't even know how that got in there, but somehow ufologists descend or some ufologists descend and turn them into zeta reticulin vampires and the next the next thing you know you have this meme that's spreading and suddenly you have aliens the chupacabras are these alien creatures when in fact you know they might just be souped up monkeys that have <laughs> escaped into the wild in Puerto Rico and so I don't think that's that's something that just happens in in uh, the United Kingdom with big cats although I love that you know alien big cats and oh yeah I mean, why don't you make a movie like that Paul well yeah and <laughs> the, it's great. the attack of the alien big cats but seriously guys okay I, well, I so maybe the cats are just natural creatures but, no, but what about the, Bigfoot? We don't often get reports of Bigfoot. I mean, the British South is, is, is relatively small to, to places like the States. And, and of course, it's, it's a relatively small island. I think, really, you can travel in any direction, and within 53 miles, you can reach the sea. So I think, I think basically, you know, when it comes down to the odd little reports now and again, which we have had, we had a, we've had a few reports from a location known as Carrot Chase in Staffordshire, where people have reported on occasions, um, strange sightings of a large, hairy man or some type of creature walking upright, which is covered in hair. There has been a couple of incidents, a couple of reports, but there's a, a, a real, a seriously lack of evidence in the UK to support such a creature because, you know, like I say, there isn't many places such as a, a large creature like that could survive and live comfortably without being regularly seen. I just think it's a it's a part of a bigger point where, you know, these, these sorts of things happen and they run amok. Gene and I were talking before you guys came on about the media too and slightly different but the way that the media 
can twist a story so that something, if you mm. just call it an alien big cat, meaning alien, it's just alien to our shores, but then it, it just spins out of control. And even if you come forward then and say, well, no, this is what we meant, people will suddenly yeah. accuse you, well, no, you're part of the cover-up now, aren't you? <laughs> you obviously made a mistake, and now you're just trying to cover it up by denying that you ever said it or something. So it's amazing to me how quickly these stories get started. And the next thing you know, you have people writing books about alien big cats, not meaning cougars escaped from zoos or something, mm. but literally yeah. they flew spaceships here from the Pleiades or something. Um, well, unfortunately. They didn't? No. <laughs> they didn't, Gene. Only in Arizona. Well, actually, Arizona is another place we can't really deal with that. But, you know, this kind of raises the larger question of the fact that also you guys are involved in UFO investigation. And one of the issues, of course, confronted by all this is whether we can take UFOs and merge it with other unusual events, or does it exist all by itself? And that's also kind of a big controversy. So, Stephen or Dave, which one wants to take this? Yeah, I'll have to be Steve. This is definitely his forte <laughs> when it's ESP or paranormal-related UFOs. Yeah, I mean, basically, we, uh, we in the 70s, we thought pretty much that the UFO phenomena in the UK was pretty much a nuts and bolts phenomena. If you picked up a stone and you threw it, you'd hit it. But as time's gone on, you've, we've had these variations in the UFO sightings across the country, such as sometimes not being picked up on radar when they're clearly visible in the sky, so presumed to be apparitional or or see-through, or, or, or some type of manifestation of a UFO, but not in a physical sense. And then we have the odd reports where people who claim to have had very profound UFO experiences and got on to say that they've experienced apparitions of entities. Uh, there was a case in, in, in Devon in regarding a farmhouse where people who had consistently seen UFOs in close proximity to the building uh, went on for uh, numerous weeks claiming that they'd seen apparitions of small entities. So you can say that there is some form of paranormal aspect and because of those psychic ramifications of those UFO experiences there is a grey area between the two where the two sides of paranormal and the UFO do come together and I think they have to sort of look at those in a different light as, to, as opposed to the, the, the normal characteristics of UFO sightings which are reported by pilots and so on and so forth. So we have to look at two kinds of UFOs? Yeah, I think we have to look at the fact that we have obviously a physical phenomena being reported in our skies, such as they're being picked up by radar, their visual evidence, uh, and also those those cases where they seem to be apparitional. There are people in the UK which have claimed to have close encounters with strange craft, but they can see through them as if they're misty or they're apparitional. And some of their experiences that follow tend to be closely associated with paranormal events. So we do have a kind of a category where some of those profound paranormal incidents come together with the UFO incidents as well. So we kind of treat them a little bit differently than the physical ones. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. 
What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Dave Sadler, Steve Mira, joining us from the UK. We're talking about paranormal phenomena, UFOs. Paul Kimball had a question. Yeah, sure. Steve, you were talking about how you might be able to separate UFO cases so you'd have the nuts and bolts UFO cases and then you'd have the, the more, say, paranormal UFO cases. Do you necessarily have to separate them or is there the possibility that the paranormal, as, as Arthur C. Clarke would say, you know, any science that's sufficiently advanced beyond ours would seem to be magic or you could sub in the word paranormal i suppose um could that just not be a manifestation of whatever the ufos are so that you don't necessarily have to separate them that the same ufo that a a radar base in in the united kingdom might pick up might also have paranormal characteristics that somebody could experience somewhere else and i'd ask you about this the most famous probably the most famous uk case uh the rendlesham forest case in 1980 Rendlesham Forest has a very long history that has nothing to do with UFOs of of hauntings and paranormal related incidents uh, stretching back for centuries. And I've been there. It's a creepy place. So is it possible that the Rendlesham UFO case is not divorced from the sort of paranormal happenings or reports that take place, have taken place for centuries in and around the forest mm-hmm. itself. And if that's the case, what does that say about UFOs or the UFO case in, in particular at Rendlesham? Yeah, I think, I think obviously when we're saying that we actually deal with things slightly different when it comes to the paranormal side of UFO encounters, what that basically entails is why we separate those is for research purposes but, and, the, and the method of our investigation. Because when people are starting to experience some more sort of paranormally orientated side of UFO experiences. There's such things as extrasensory perception, there's the, 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 the psychological aspects and the physiological aspects that we have to investigate. When we're talking a radar detected sighting in the sky, which is reported by pilots, we don't tend to get involved in the psychological and the, and the EFP side of things. It tends to be a sort of a hard-hitting case. The reason why we, we separate those two is basically is because it, it's our pattern of investigation changes slightly but the whole thing with regarding the whole subject of the UFO phenomena it could simply be that it is it can simply have these different metaphysical aspects to the phenomena where it can seem to be paranormally orientated or it can be of a physical nature you know it could be just one subject which we really are trying to approach it from different sides to try and find some different answers but uh, as for Rendlesham Forest I mean I've visited there a number of times and yes it's a very paranormally orientated through history, you know, there have been lots of hauntings and strange things being seen and, uh, and reported there. It is also coincidental that, you know, the, that an incident such as the, um, the Rendlesham Forest UFO case actually took place there. And you can draw comparisons across the UK where certain hotspots of paranormal activity have been reported and also UFO reported sightings. Is it possible that the UFO cases and the paranormal stuff is all related in the sense uh, my friend and many people have speculated about this, but my uh, my friend, the late Mac Tonys, who passed away last year, would yeah. would make these kind of links where he would say, Greg Bishop does the same thing. It's an overarching intelligence. What we're dealing with is some non-human intelligence, and it manifests itself in many different ways when dealing with different 
types of people. So if you're dealing with airplane pilots or military pilots or police officers, perhaps, perhaps you have a more, or let's just say people in the Western world with a certain level of education and technological sophistication, you now manifest yourself and appear to them in the form of alien spacecraft or things that they would perhaps understand or would resonate with them. But if you're dealing perhaps with less let's say, technologically sophisticated people or even more superstitious people or even religious people. Maybe you manifest yourself in different ways to those people. But is it possible that we're just dealing with one overarching intelligence that just chooses to manifest itself in different ways depending on our circumstances? I think it's very possible. I think it's very easy to say that, you know, obviously the, the amount of UFO reported incidents throughout the, the UK are significantly different, a lot of them, than uh, than they are in other countries. We have the cultural aspect. I mean, if we take uh, just for an example the alien abduction phenomena, which was strife across the UK during the 1980s, a lot of it was probably media-driven through very popular television programs at that time. Um, but nevertheless, though, people did report such incidents. The incidents throughout the UK are very more spiritual, the more contactee-type cases, as opposed to the kicking and screaming abductions, which often are reported from, you know, from different places of the, uh, around the world. So this country doesn't tend to have many, you could say, people who say that they've been forcefully taken. We do tend to get um, a lot of people reporting spiritual type experiences or contactee type experiences where they've gone willingly and, and, and I think basically we're dealing with it. it's a cultural aspect simply what separates the, 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 the two things the two types of incidents most of the UFO sightings uh, that I've been involved in UFO cases I've been involved in over the past 13 14 years have tended to been easily rationalized easily explained uh, nuts and bolts phenomena and I think that the high Proportion and let, let's let's pick a ballpark figure. 98% of the sightings that come in have no psychic ramifications, have no paranormal aspects related to them. They're mainly nuts and bolts UFO cases where you're able to say, okay, something in the sky. Again, because. It is historical. As, as soon as you've seen a UFO, it's historical usually. You can't look into it the way you can the paranormal. But when you see, you know, most of the people in the UK, the people I've spoke to have claimed to be contactees or explained to have spiritual things occur to them via the UFOs have mainly been people who are at the same time claiming to be mediums, claiming to be spiritualists. And personally, I've got a big mm. no-go area with them. So, <laughs> <laughs> See how I, I, I had to change it all then. So in, in respect to the psychic ramifications of the paranormal aspects, in the UK, I don't believe it's as, it's as big as it is over in the US. I've just always been fascinated because if you talk to what you would normally call the nuts and bolts UFO researchers, particularly I find in the United States, they shy away from anything that would smack of religion or faith or spirituality or new age, that's the sort of term that they would use to denigrate anything beyond pure science. Then you run into people like Valet, who I think very quickly got frustrated with that and were looking for larger patterns. And I think the nuts and bolts people just said, okay, there's something in the sky. It's, it's got to be aliens from Zeta Reticuli because I'm a scientist and that's what makes sense to me. And, and they point to patterns. They'll say, well, we have certain types of cases or, you know, we have cone-shaped UFOs and cigar-shaped UFOs. So they're all about patterns when it buttresses their own 
preconceived notion of what it should be. But when you point out that there are larger patterns, that the UFO phenomenon has been existing long before Roswell, the 1940s, it's the, seeing things in the sky have been with us for our entire history. It's just yeah. we tend to see different things at different times in our history. They run away from that screaming. If you come forward as Nick Redfern has and said, well, maybe there's a link between certain different paranormal subjects. Maybe Bigfoot and UFOs in some way are related. Because if you look at Bigfoot cases and certain UFO cases, you'll find that there are similarities in what's yeah. being reported in the cases. In particular, I think electromagnetic interference, loss of power, that kind of thing. And yeah. they'll run away again from that. And they'll say to people like Nick, well, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. Stick to aliens. And do you, Steve, or Dave, yep. do, do you sort of see that those kinds of patterns, that we have to be more open-minded about what the possibilities are that these I'm phenomena sure, For sure, definitely. I mean, we, we can't obviously contain ourselves within just one subject because there clearly there is connections with, with other incidents. I mean, there, are, there was a space of incidents in the States, I remember, some years back where where there was seemed to be some type of connection with UFO activity and Bigfoot activity. I believe there's some strange lights had been seen and these beings which were large and tall and hairy were seen at the at the time as well and it caused a little bit of a stir. I know that there are some very strange and profound things which do connect and maybe we we, we are looking at the subject we, we in pieces as opposed to the full picture. You could be you could be um, right on suggesting that. I like that, the full pitch. It's very British. Full yeah. pitch sounds to me like somebody's selling something yeah. <laughs> or maybe that's being provincial because those of us who live in the colonies don't understand this but that's also the thing that troubles me about ufo research because i think early on when i started getting involved in this even getting into the 1960s when i was really young i'm not as old as i sound back in the 60s i started thinking you know this has to be more all-encompassing than just things in the sky. We weren't talking so much about Zeta Reticuli. I think Zeta Reticuli came out of that hill abduction because of the yeah. star map. The star map supposedly identified yeah. Zeta Reticuli, although there are other versions of the star map that specify something yeah. else. But yeah, I just use Zeta Reticuli as a catch-all phrase for any planet not named Earth. So um, so I'm not picking on Zeta. If there are Zeta reticulans here, I don't want them showing up at my door tonight going, hey, how come you're blaming us? For Ladies and gentlemen, any Zeta reticulans or reticulians or whatever they call themselves, if you know Paul Kimball's address, he needs to be abducted. No. But that's another point. Seriously, Stephen. If I'm going to be abducted, I want to be abducted by Billy Myers' hot Nordic. Pleiadians, um, <laughs> those ones can show up at my door tonight. Yeah, I think we've probably moved on from the 70s jumpsuits, though, Paul. <laughs> I know, it's a terrible shame. Aliens were, you know, it's funny, and I, sorry, Gene, I interrupted you there. No, you know what? That's okay. Interrupt and go ahead. I'll just sit back here and I'll sniffle. <laughs> what, I, I've always wondered what it says about our modern society. I think the UFO phenomenon speaks a lot in some respects to the society we live in. Now we have these very scientific, heartless, cold greys that seem to experiment on us. And I think that speaks a lot to our own fears about the way science yes. is progressing and, our, and divorcing from sort of who we are as, as individuals. Whereas in the 50s and the 60s with the contactee movement, yeah. if I had to choose, I'd, I'd hang out with the contactee people. They seem to be oh, more yeah. fun. They seem to be more spiritual. And they're aliens seem to be a lot mm. more friendly and had a better message, which was, you know, don't blow up the planet with nukes. Well, so, of course, there was yeah, Truman yeah. Bethram, I believe. Was that the one who went out with Aura Reigns? Um, 
you'd have or is that Dan Fry? I, I, those two seem to blur in my consciousness. But one of them was taken aboard a spaceship by Aura Rains, who came from a planet that is opposite the Earth, so we never see it. <laughs> yeah. Aura Rains. It sounds like she comes from a planet in in Los Angeles, right next to the, uh, the Hustler Magazine building. That's a uh, that's quite the name. Yeah, I understand I she's she working be- nights now in Las Vegas. Oh, I think Steve would agree with me, though, uh, currently in the UK, because of, uh, yeah, we'll call it culture and, and the media-driven, the paranormal is is big thing in the UK. It's right up there. Everybody wants to be a ghostbuster. Everybody thinks they're an instant uh, expert at the subject. Everybody's paying to what we call paper booze, paying to yeah, I think, I think, which were, and, and, and because of this big cultural diversity now where everybody's into the paranormal, yeah. I can't remember the last time I actually spoke to anybody who claimed to have any, apart from obviously UFO sightings, which normally in the UK would have been to us, Steve, I think you'll agree again, have been lit over the past couple of years. We've yeah. had no major UFO cases, we've had no landings reported, we've had no contactees, we've had nothing of consequence other than lights in the sky. Everything else is like paranormal, yeah. paranormal, because of media-driven and, and obviously that's people's perceptions currently in the UK. Yeah, of course we can't we can't get away from the fact that we probably live in a country which is probably the most paranormally orientated country on the planet, I would thought, with its, with its a huge amount of history that, that our country has regarding battles and uh, which has taken place and, and stately homes which are haunted, castles and so on and so forth. England does seem to be the place for the paranormal if people want to come and, and, and believe that they want to see a ghost. It does seem to be the place, as, as Paul will tell you. Yeah, which here, you know, it's my old days from college radio. That segues nicely into ghosts, because England does seem to be England, Scotland, Wales, that entire area. I mean, I'm sure the Germans have lots of ghosts, some metaphorical and some literal. But uh, England is is probably, you know, seems like the most haunted place there is. We visited, when we were doing ghost cases, some of those haunted places, and I'd like to talk about some of those. In particular, I'd like to start, maybe, Dave, tell us about the Shocklack Church case, which you guys have investigated, and then which um, Holly and I went in with you and Steve, and we investigated for ghost cases. Tell us the background of, of the Shocklack Church case, which I, which I think is just a fascinating case, particularly as I was there, and both Holly and I experienced something at the church, or more than something. Yeah. So maybe you could take us through the Shocklack case, which which is a great ghost case, move from UFOs to ghosts. And let me warn you yeah, first, like, before you start, that we're going to break for the hourly hiatus in just a couple of minutes, so you can start on the case on this section, then we'll resume on the other section. Certainly. Uh, basically, uh, St. Edith's Church in Shocklack uh, is a 13th, sorry, 12th century uh, UK church. It's very old, it's very beautiful, it's very picturesque, and it's built in the middle of nowhere, suggested it's built in the middle of nowhere because of uh, lepers at the time they were going to the church there was possibly a leper hospital at the location because obviously they could go in the field surrounding the church for for worship and such like and other people could come to the church from afar Uh, now We've done a lot of, a hell of a lot of man hours. We're talking hundreds, maybe into the thousands of man hours at the site in, again, the past 13, 14 years. And it's always produced something odd. I've witnessed things odd. And, and I'm not talking physical things. I'm not talking apparitions. I actually witnessed a time slip there about eight years ago. Uh, but there's, as I said, there's time slips witnessed, there's apparitions witnessed, there's sounds witnessed. Paul and Holly witnessed something I reported, uh, well, Holly actually reported something to me word for word 
exactly the words that at least 13 different other witnesses, uh, none of whom are connected word for word, have, have reported to me how the area seems to be not quite right. Uh, for those who've read or watched the Harry Potter films, uh, in one of the books, there's the, they're in the, uh, the, the wizard government place and there's a curtain like a curtain and they go through the curtain. There's something on the other side and that's what everybody reports at Shocklack. There's something on the other side. It's not quite able to touch it, but there's something there. Again, with the apparitions, we've seen people, we've had reported people uh, kneeling at the graves. We've had lights reported. We've had singing from internal of the church. We've had, and, and this is where Paul will jump on straight away, we've had the sounds of horses uh, reported, horses' hooves. Now, it's alleged historically that it's the uh, Britain funeral cortege which uh, coming down to the church to bury one of uh, the Britain family. Uh, I'll tell you what, we're at a point where we should just break this and keep the cliffhanger going. Does that work for you? What happens next? Yeah, great. Right, sure, Dave. We'll have Dave Sadler and Steve Mara, and Dave will give us what they say on another show, the rest of the story on the other side of the Paracast. So, Frank, what do you think about UFOs? I saw one once. I think they're out there. You know, what, what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We return with Dave Sadler, Steve Mara, our guest co-host is none other than Paul Kimball. And if you click on their respective names or credits on the Paracast.com, you'll learn all about their books and stuff. For example, Dave has a book out called Paranormal Reality, Ghosts, UFOs, and Pussycats. Steve's book is Strange Happenings, Memoirs of a Paranormal Investigator. They're both connected with a UK-based organization called Unknown Phenomena Investigation Association, and we'll have him give a pitch for everything later in the show. Dave, you were telling us about a haunting. Please continue. Yes, Shocklack Church. It's on the uh, it's on the border of uh, England and North Wales. And as I said um, earlier, this is a a location that, no matter how many occasions I've been, something of consequence has occurred. I witnessed the time slip. Other people have always witnessed something else. The, when we took along uh, Paul, Holly and the team from Ghost Cases, it was actually Steve's first opportunity to come along to Shocklack. And I know for a fact that Steve's dying to get back. We're just waiting for the UK weather to get better. And we've got a, a long study of work to do there because we've come up with some ideas of what might be causing some of these events to uh, to, to be reported. But yeah, back to the cases themselves. We've, we've 
obviously discussed the sounds of the horses, the Britain funeral cortege. There's an old lady in ragged, peasant lady in ragged clothing has been seen turned into the graves, uh, noises from inside the church, and it's a fantastic area. And strangely, there's been a lot of UFO reports locally as well. Uh, there's also, uh, not in relation to the site, but locally, uh, a lot of witchcraft, uh, ancient witchcraft going back many, many years has been reported uh, from the surrounding areas. And to be honest, it's one of the most beautiful locations of, of any site that I've visited in the UK throughout my years of, of association with the subject. In the case itself, is, is some of the things are so profound. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the time slip. As I say, it's in the middle of nowhere. You can't hear anybody or see anybody for, for, for miles away. I think the nearest road that you have to come down the lane from is probably a quarter of a mile away. I was on my way to the site and we had a bit of a thunderstorm. Not dissimilar to the thunderstorms you have in the US for a change where it rained, it thundered, it lightning, and all of a sudden everything cleared up and it was a beautiful summer's day again. Myself, a colleague, and at the time his seven-year-old daughter went to the site just for the, hey, let's go see the site. Several odd things occurred. My colleague had a profound human experience. He started spouting all sorts of bomb pottery, <laughs> as though he was associated with the site many, many years ago. He was replying to me strange, bizarre things. And when we went to discuss that at the, uh, the rear of the site not long after, I asked his daughter so I could talk to his dad, go run around the church. So as she run around the running around the church and it, I think we timed it would should have been about 35 to a minute uh, 35 seconds to a minute it would have took the 7 year old girl to run around the church as she went round one corner immediately she came out the corner opposite to us so what should have took quite a length of time happened immediately and that was the most that, that is the most foul thing I've ever witnessed in my my time with the subject I've witnessed not much or anything that could be explained or one or two things that are still scratching my head about but that I witnessed was bizarre so this, this is a site of the utmost importance to us and, and because of the time slip because of additional reports from Holly from Paul from all the other witnesses that have come through to the UPI over the years this is one of our main I would suggest cases that we not just the past 14 years but another 14 and another 14 years after that we're going to be looking at this site it's very odd because I think Dave you and I one of the reasons why we get along is we, we sort of have the same point of view you don't use the word skeptic you use realist I say skeptic but I think you know six of one half dozen of the other so uh -huh. shock lack is kind of a point of meeting for both of us because you have your time slip which I don't see from how you describe it I remember we were filming it and you were consistently saying well you know I don't believe or accept in the paranormal uh, I don't want to mischaracterize what you said but something along those lines and then you're talking about a time slip which the only word I can use to describe that is paranormal uh, <laughs> so but you 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 seem to be very leery of the paranormal um, sort of word or title or that that thing and I understand completely because so am I but there as you would recall I was sitting behind the church in Shocklack as the night wore on my co-producer uh, Dale Stevens was off in another area of the churchyard and he wandered over and they were filming me just sort of doing some Carl Sagan-esque talking head kind of thing pontificating about what a lovely place it was Dale comes over and he goes oh you know oh my god I just like saw the craziest thing it was if the the sky blacked out in this particular thing and I went, really? And he said, yeah. And he looked a little embarrassed when he was saying it. And I said, that's weird, because I saw 
pretty much what you just described only over there about 10 minutes ago. And everybody just looked at me and said, you know, like, why wouldn't you? Holly hit me later. She smacked me and said, why wouldn't you say something like that? Because she was going, here I am talking about horses' hooves and feeling weird. And you were having the same thing happen, but you wouldn't say anything. And I said, well, you know, my natural inclination is to just pocket that and not talk about it. Because if you talk about it, and what we saw, Gene, was... Um, if you have a sky, you know, the sky is dark anyway, but there's some residual light coming from towns off in the distance over in Wales. So it's not pitch dark, even at, in, in, at night. But I call it a void, like a, a Star Trek episode where you would see people sort of um, warp in and it would go black for, in my case, about five or six seconds. And it would expand and then it disappeared. And it's not something flying by. It wasn't a barn owl or anything like that. It was It was really weird. And when Dale described the exact same thing, then you get this idea that, well, okay, now I feel better because somebody who's reasonably intelligent and not drunk just saw the same thing that I saw in a different place. So that verifies or, or buttresses my own experience. But it's that, that thing where you get guys like Dave and I, where we, we have trouble admitting that maybe we experience something, as Dave said, profound. Do you find that, Dave? Do you find you have still trouble admitting that maybe something truly profound happened to you at Shocklack? Yeah, I do. I think mainly, Paul, it's because the amount of locations I've spent time at, the amount of investigations I've, I've uh, been privy to, I've never actually witnessed anything of consequence. So it's hard for me to, don't get me wrong, everything that everybody says to me, unless I can prove that the person's lying or trip them up to a point that they admit that they're not being truthful, everything that everybody says to me in regards to reported paranormal activity from shock, like from anywhere, I believe, I can't not believe. It's just that I've not witnessed anything myself. And because I've not witnessed anything personally, it's difficult to appreciate what everybody else is trying to say. So when something does occur, I think I try to uh, explain it away a little bit too much. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've tried to explain to Dave a number of times that it's literally is a matter of your own experiences. I mean, from investigating the paranormal up to around about 1995, I was pretty much a very much a skeptic in paranormal phenomena. I thought everything could be attributed to psychological conditions, misinterpretations, uh, and those sort of things. Until I had my very own, very hard-hitting experience in 1995 in Rochdale, <laughs> during, during uh, an investigation of poltergeist phenomena. I've only ever actually been lucky enough over 25 years to investigate two cases of poltergeist phenomena. Uh, and both have been significant in my life, um, which uh, which tell me that there's got to be something more to the paranormal, and that's why it's worthy of uh, further investigation. And that's the next thing I wanted to discuss was to move from uh, Shocklack to the Rochdale case, which is, I've heard you talk about it, and I think mm -hmm. I could do a 90-minute film on that easy with just you talking. Um, it's a, an amazing yeah. case. So we'll try and distill it down, um, you know, maybe to five or six, seven, eight, whatever minutes. But before yeah. we leave Shocklack, relating a bit to your own experience there, Steve, for the first time, as Dave said, it was the first time you'd been there, um, and also the way you guys run an investigation, because you experienced something. It was the light, if you remember. You saw a light. And I did, yeah. Perhaps you can describe the light, and then perhaps you we can talk about, well, okay, mm. we saw something. Let's figure out if we can find a rational explanation for it um, and how yeah. we went about investigating it. Yeah, well, I was actually situated at the back of the church with, uh, along with an infrared camera taking some film shots. And um, out 
by the side of me. It wasn't really out the corner of my eye, actually, which was quite surprising. But I did actually see this light appear across a tomb. And what it was, it was quite a straight line as well. I remember, remember um, thinking to myself that someone must be local with a light. So I went round the corner of the church to look for somebody, and I, I actually couldn't see anybody there. So when I actually brought it to, to your attention, um, I initially started thinking, trying to immediately rationalise the experience, uh, and thought that maybe somebody further down on the uh, opposite side of the church, in the in the lower graveyard, may have been flashing a, a light, uh, a flashlight around, and and maybe somehow it had caught a reflection and, and and strayed up to the top end of the uh, of, of the church. And of course, what we did is we we went down there and we found out that Dale was down there um, with his flashlight looking around some of the graves. We literally asked him to to to, to, to replicate that to see if he could. Um, point his flashlight in that direction to see if it would reach up to the top end and we are talking quite a considerable distance and yeah. uh, it was it was nothing like it whatsoever um, I mean we pretty much proved that as a, as a flashlight um, the light source expands from a, from a flashlight and this was very it, I remember it was very similar to like seeing a light source in, in a line as opposed to uh, a growing light source from a flashlight we couldn't replicate it so I can only presume that it must have been something unusual that I'd seen but uh, we did try and uh, try our best to try and find out what it could have been if it was uh, if it was down to somebody with a flashlight but that didn't seem the case yeah I mean to me that that was of all the things I've done in paranormal investigations that was one of the most um, fun moments ahead. It only really took us five minutes. But, yeah, yeah. you know, running through that process of saying, okay, something maybe weird happened. Let's, like Sherlock Holmes, let's eliminate any of the things that we can think of that might explain it without resorting to the weird stuff. And if you can eliminate those things, then what you're left with no matter how strange, might actually be something that's weird. Um, I don't know if we eliminated every possible explanation, but we eliminated the one, given the location, that made the most mm. sense. And yes. as you say, and so once you do that, I, I actually think that the, the payoff comes not from experiencing something, but from eliminating the possible explanations. So, yeah. because we can all experience something, but then if you go through and say, well, okay, couldn't have been Dale with his flashlight, so what are we left with? That's when you have your brief moment where you go, Hmm. You know, everybody starts <laughs> nodding their heads together and going, well, that, or when Dale came over to me and talked about his own black void, or when Holly talked about her horse hoof thing, and I said, mm. well, you really, you know, I heard the same thing too. And then she hit me again. And, you know, you <laughs> nod your head and go, right. And you've walked, we walked around with the horse hooves. And I got to tell you, Gene, like it literally sounded as if, because in Halifax here, we have horse drawn carriages, part of the tourist trade, cobblestone, cobblestone streets and stuff. And, and I know that sound and that's exactly and so does holly that's exactly the sound that we both thought we heard and there was nothing in in the vicinity that could possibly have made that sound she heard it twice i heard it twice and then you just sort of nod your head and go okay that's weird and it's even weirder because you've taken the time to take a look to see if there's a rational explanation for it which i think in the paranormal field an awful lot of people don't don't bother to go through that step they just go wow that was crazy and then weird and they stop there and I think it's only weird once you can eliminate the non-weird stuff. I also wonder sometimes how many people have this, gosh, that was weird, and they forget about it or get on with their lives. Yeah. 
It's time to mend fences here on the Paracast, and we've had our differences with Bill Burns and UFO Magazine, but now, can't we just get along? What do you think, Bill? Hi, everybody. This is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine. I'm glad to be back with Gene Steinberg on the Paracast, and here's a special offer for all you Paracast fans. Normally, we sell five issues of the magazine for $19.99. Guess what? If you're a fan of the Paracast, a friend of Gene Steinberg's, you're my friend as well, it's six issues of UFO magazine for 1999 look forward to hearing from you and gene thanks for having me back so where do we get a hold of you bill you can get a hold of me at www.ufomag.com that's www.ufomag.com i look forward to hearing from you you've entered another dimension you've entered the paracast Dave Sadler, Steve Mara, they're paranormal investigators from the UK. And unlike some of us here in the colonies, they take a far more all-encompassing view of what's going on. Our special guest host this week is Paul Kimball. So that takes us back to the other thing here. How many people out there, you think, are having experiences and they say, oh, that was pretty weird. Let me get back to my life. It really has to be severe before they report it, right? Currently, we've got, because as I said earlier, with this current big paranormal trend that's come up, the, uh, the, everybody in the media is doing something paranormal. Everybody in the media, local, uh, national newspapers are doing silly pictures of silly things that they claim to be UFOs, enough for more than somebody threw a mobile phone in the sky. You know, this, this is everybody is reporting something but I think the ones who aren't reporting things of consequence are the ones that really need to step forward because they're probably the ones that are the most interesting and are the most important because they're not the bandwagon jumpers well from my own experience I think that's the truth that a lot of times not always but a lot of times the people that come forward are seeking publicity or there's a lot of other things going on I think when people generally reasonable, rational, even skeptical people experience something weird. I think their inclination, and Dave, I think you can see this in both you and I, is to not tell people. Mm-hmm. Or if you do tell people, laugh it off and sort of say, well, some, you know, rationalize it. So I think the more, the, the really interesting cases, a lot of them are, are the ones where you actually have to really pull the story out of people because they're, they're afraid of what you're going to think of them because it sounds daft to them. And so they think it's going to sound daft to you. This year mm-hmm. alone, it's, it's what, we've had two months of the year gone so far. The UPI have received, I think, 16 documents, sorry, 16 reports that have gone onto the database, which, again, paranormal, big cat, and ufological. I think there's only three of them that have not been stopped. Okay, yeah, we've been able to answer it. This is what it is. That's what it, there you go, ended. Three of them cases, uh, we've got people diarizing events. We've got people, everything that possibly happens that they could presume to be paranormal, we've got them documenting over a period of time and we'll go back to them and see if there is anything of consequence that we can see in their report. So already this year we've, we've had a number of cases come in 
and not one of them cases, apart from obviously the big cat stuff where we've been out there and done something, nothing of consequence has come from any of them cases which has been, oh yeah, I'm really excited, let's go and put that to the top of the list as Steve said earlier, you know, it's really warranted of an investigation, everything has been more or less concluded over a matter of days at the very least. So, everything, as I'm trying to say, that the whole UK scene with regards to the paranormal, with regards to the UFOs, it is bandwagon jumpers at the moment. It's, it's, it's most of them are nothing of consequence, and you know we really would like people to reconsider that there are organisations not dissimilar to the UPIA, UPIA out there who aren't media driven, who don't want to jump on and get the 15 minutes of fame. We're actually trying to assist people and help people in further the studies of the subject. When you get these ways of reporting, it's a signal to noise kind of thing. And so there's always a signal there. Those would be the few cases that are worth, worth looking at, but they can often get lost in the noise you just get yeah, i mean yeah. police officers are the same way if you get a rash of cases coming in most of which are easily resolvable or whatever you know you don't have as much time to deal with the really important cases that require a great deal of investigation and yeah. speaking of really important cases i want to get back to the rochdale case steve which happened yeah. in it was in 1995 yeah, it was the summer of 1995. In fact, we'd had a, um, what was really interesting about this case because it came, it came to us via a newspaper article. And I remember it, it very clearly. The title of it was Spooky Spills Scare Family from Home. And uh, I remember reading it and having a little giggle at the time. Uh, and it showed a photograph of um, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner who were mopping their ceiling uh, and they were claiming that the spooky spills of water were associated to some paranormal activity that was going on in their home. At the time it happened, we had a very serious drought across the UK at that time. We were into our fourth week of no rain. And in fact, over here in the UK, we only got to have literally about uh, a couple of weeks of no rain and, uh, and with some sun. And we, and we do have problems regarding water. Don't ask me why, we just do. Um, so um, we were into our fourth week and it was a serious drought at that time. There was hosepipe bans and we had this prefabricated bungalow in Rochdale where this family had lived there for 14 years with uh, an immense amount of water that seemed to be uh, pumping from the walls and ceilings. So it certainly grabbed my attention. And so then you guys went to investigate the case. You know, I, I assume that, you know, signal to noise, you get a lot of cases, but this was one of those signal cases. And maybe you can take us through the, the investigation. And, and what struck me when you would talk about it, we were on a radio show when you were describing it in the UK, Steve, but also when you would tell it to me in person. What struck me the most about it was it seemed to be one of those, no pun intended, watershed cases that come along in a person's life <laughs> where, um, I, really, I meant no, no pun intended, but, you know, those turning points, a pivotal yeah. case where, for you, it's like you walk through a door. That's how I describe it. Everything, exactly. listening to you talk to it, everything you thought you knew, you now look at maybe differently. So those are those are rare cases. Maybe so. Tell us about the case. Yeah. Tell us what happened to you, and 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 give us the story because it's an amazing story. It, it is, and I, I certainly I admit I was not prepared for it. I mean, I'd been I, I, I'm quite you know I'm, I admired that the fact that I've actually learned from probably the best people in the country at the time regarding the investigation of paranormal phenomena and parapsychology. But it, nothing could have prepared me for, for that incident in 1995. Like I say, I'd been investigating for quite a number of years, 25 years in total, and I've, I've never actually come across. I've only been involved in two cases of poltergeist activity. They've both been both extreme. 
But um, I went in there with, I don't know, I thinking that I was going to be able to rationalise this within the next half an hour because if water is actually coming from the ceilings or walls, there's going to be evidence of where um, that water is coming from, such as burst pipes, condensation, and so on and so forth. When I got there, I was quite surprised to find that the council, the local council, had been in, involved in the in the home for at least two or three months trying to find out exactly what was going on and they'd fitted numerous fans in the property thinking that it may have been condensation um, which it wasn't they'd fitted numerous devices around to monitor water and they put up these pieces of paper on the wall to write down uh, incidents as well because they, were, they actually they didn't know what to make of it. It wasn't long before someone started pointing the finger and saying, well, you know, maybe the family are throwing water on the walls and ceilings themselves because they want to be rehomed or want to move house. Obviously, that always comes to mind. It's not the first time that I've come across an investigation of a, of a, of a building where it's rented from a housing association or a, or a council and that they're using the paranormal as a way of being rehomed or relocated. I have come across that before. Uh, so I immediately fell into this pattern of, you know, I'm going to be able to rationalise this quite quickly. What we immediately found was that it wasn't just water formings which was part of that phenomenon. There was other things taking place, such as objects being moved, things jumping off the wall, um, things working of their own accord. It had a clock radio, which was apparently was to be heard working when it wasn't plugged in. Numerous smells and bad odours, and of course some strange sounds. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Garda had reported that they'd heard coughing coming from the corner of their bedroom one night. Doors and windows would open and close. Um, paintings and pictures would jump off, suddenly jump off the wall and catapult themselves across the room. This was also witnessed by what, a vicar who was a friend of Mrs. Gardner because she was actually a cleaner at a local church. And the vicar came out and during that visit, one of the paintings, she had a tiger painting on the wall, which shot off the wall and, and, and literally flew across the lounge at least a good seven or eight foot uh, and landed on the floor. Uh, in view of this vicar, who we'd interviewed as well, and uh, he he quite clearly turned around and said, which we were quite surprised again, he believed it was poltergeist activity. So he'd obviously known about the subject himself, and after witnessing that, I don't think he had an explanation. But we wanted to just to make sure that the council were, um, had gone in and, and done the appropriate checks. So we, we went up in the loft, and it was not only dry, but it was very dusty up there, uh, and there were no, uh, no leaking water pipes whatsoever. So what we managed to do is uh, we sat down and interviewed the family, uh, which were by this time very distressed about the whole experiences. A lot of furniture and carpets had been ruined. Um, and on one occasion, it was apparently raining in the kitchen. Mr. Garner actually had to put his umbrella up in the kitchen, which is, sounds ridiculous. But um, the, these are the things that were being reported to us. I know we think England is a wet country, but um, not even yeah. in England do we believe that it rains inside your house in the kitchen. <laughs> well, it's quite surprising. It was, uh, we didn't know what to expect, to tell you the truth. We, we were taking all these details down, and we thought there were very, a lot of very tall stories, to tell you the truth. But 
uh, the good thing about this particular investigation is that when we took it on board, it was on the agreement that the family, we, we could have them vacated the building for the evening, and we would monitor that building. So we'd, we'd rule out, completely rule out the fact that anybody was actually throwing water around or, um, or, or basically hoaxing anything. So we had full control, and we had about five or six investigators in there for a duration of about 36 hours, and um, we set up all of our, our equipment, and the very first thing that was to experience was around about 11 o'clock in the evening, um, a small statuette appeared in the middle of the lounge. Now, what was quite interesting, we'd had two or three investigators had been in and out of the lounge, and we'd got um, some coffee, and we were sat in the lounge talking, when one of the investigators said, what's that down there on the floor? And right in the middle of, the, bang right in the middle of the floor, on the carpet was a small statuette. Now, we didn't actually know where that had come from. It certainly wasn't there when we walked into the room. It would have been so obvious we would end up probably tripping over it. We had no idea. We had only later on in the investigation when we ran back on the videotapes, because when we first go into a building, we do a video suite to see where all types of um, ornaments and things are. We actually located where that ornament was early in the evening, which was nowhere near where it should have been. So we don't know how that actually got there, and it was a bit of a mystery. Um, but as the night went on, we heard some unusual noises, and then all of a sudden we have a spate of water activity um, on the door frame, to begin with, of the kitchen door, and then right down the door, beads of water came out of the, of the actual door. We were stood there watching these beads of water appear from nowhere. We were quite, you know, amazed to find it. You know, we, I mean, we, we touched it, we could see it forming. Uh, and yet we didn't know where it was coming from, and we thought maybe we were, were talking about some really profound natural phenomena here. You know, maybe there's, there's some form of rational explanation, but that was ruled out when we the main incident happened in the hallway about uh, half past five in the morning, when we saw water. I can only explain to you how I seen it, and, and basically there was water flowing across the ceiling. It was defying gravity. As it flowed across the ceiling, it didn't drip to the ground. It arched itself around the light fitting on the ceiling and then stopped itself. So it had movement, and it, as it flowed, it, it, was, it was strange. It was like you spilling a cup of water on the floor in the kitchen, and you see it move along the floor. It was the same effect, but on the ceiling. But it was kind of defying gravity in a sense of speaking. It was just, we were just absolutely gobsmacked. We quickly, what was the best thing to do, we quickly went up in the loft, we looked around, there was nothing there. In fact, it was bone dry on the opposite side surface of the ceiling. The water was clearly there. We took samples of that water for a later analysis, and then it would mysteriously disappear within minutes and then appear in other places. Is this so something was, that you can actually stop and take a collection of this water to mm -hmm. see what it was? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we were looking up. We had we had water sample bottles with us. We actually scraped it across the ceiling and got water in it. Now that was great for us because we thought, okay, well, we can have that analysed by a laboratory at some stage. But what we needed also was a control form. So what we did is we went to the kitchen, uh, sorry, the bathroom tap, and uh, turned it on and, and put some normal tap water in the other sample that we had. So we had a controlled sample of tap water, and then this unusual water was seen to be on the ceiling. And this, this pattern of events kind of went on all night, you know, where, where it disappeared and reappeared in other places. 
Uh, I remember we were splitting up and I headed off into the back bedroom with two other investigators. Now this was a location where Mrs. Gardner's last husband had passed away. He had um, uh, an asthma problem and had died. Uh, he had collapsed. Um, he was in that room quite a lot. And we decided that we, we, we'd spend some quiet time sat on the end of the bed in the bedroom along with a, a couple of other investigators. And um, we all was, were sitting there and we all heard like a, a deep breath, somebody trying to breathe, um, struggling for breath, in a sense of speaking, from behind us. And just at that point, we, we looked at each other and we could clearly say that, you know, we were all hearing this. And just as I was about to turn around, I got thumped in the back. Well, it was a very unusual experience because when people asked me how that actually felt, it felt like it was a thump and an electric shock at the same time. It did fly, it flew me off the bed, to tell you the truth, into the, into the small dressing table. Now, I don't know if that was part of reaction or part of shock, to tell you the truth, you know, but it, I found myself not knowing how I'd been lifted off the bed. This is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. This is Leslie Kane and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Steve Mira, Dave Sadler joining us, Paranormal Investigators from the UK, our guest host is Paul Kimball, and we're being regaled with spiritual water. Spiritual water, yeah. You see, I, I, I couldn't explain how I felt at that time of being hit. I've always been taught that a paranormal phenomena doesn't harm people. It's the same thing I tell people, in fact. You know, when I try and get people to calm down, I say, look, you know, paranormal phenomena, you know, rarely, you know, are people ever reporting injuries and things like that. It tends to be something which is more would scare you as opposed to injuring you. But there I was in this, that exact situation where something had hit me in the back. Now, you know, it didn't take me long to rush out of that room and into the lounge and into the light. And the investigators rushed around me and, and were more interested in photographing the back and the bruise that was slowly appearing, which was about four inches. Um, and taking photographs of that as opposed to asking exactly what was gone on. <laughs> at that point, at that point, I left the building and went outside and sat on the wall out on the front. And at that point, I was considering, should I take a different path? Should I not get involved in the paranormal? <laughs> this is something I wasn't trained to deal with. It wasn't something I knew how to, how to deal with. I just didn't expect it, and I, I had no pattern of investigation for it. I'd, have, I'd experienced it myself. I was out there for a good, a good while, a good 20 minutes, just you know, thinking, should I bother or should I go home? You know, it's, it's, and, and then I thought to myself, no, you know, it's, you know, I, I, I want to try and find out 
what's been going on, what, why should this sort of thing happen. But I've, I've never had an explanation as to why I had that sensation, why I got hit on the back. There was certainly some physical evidence because I had a bruise, I had a mark, which was photographed, and you know people can see that photograph on our website. That, to me, was a very, very unusual experience, and it certainly made me start to believe that there was definitely something for more to the paranormal than what I initially thought. I was just going to ask you, what were the results yeah. of the uh, water analysis that you guys had run between the, um, yeah. the roof water, as we'll call it, and the, uh, the tap water? Well, that was absolutely fascinating because what happened was it, it, a whole organization went, went overdrive. We submitted the water sample to Northwest Water Laboratories and they ran some analysis on the two samples that we had, the control sample, which was tap water, and the unusual water that was appearing on the ceiling. And this very distinctly could tell the difference on, on analysis. The water that was on the ceiling was not tap water. Now, you have to question, where else was water coming from? How else would water suddenly appear in a house on a ceiling or on a wall or on a door if it doesn't come from the source of main of water into that building, such as your tap water? It wasn't tap water. And the most significant finding that they had was they measured the electrical conductivity of the water. Now, normal tap water, as they, as they explain Northwest Water Laboratories, has an electrical conductivity. So when we pour water out of our taps into our glasses, there's a certain amount of electrical conductivity in that through the water molecules moving across pipes generates a certain amount of electricity. Now, they believe that the normal tap water is a very low, it's, it's, it's around about 900 or, uh, or, eight, uh, or 800 UCSMs. The phenomenon was that the actual ceiling water that we managed to capture was off the charts. The electrical conductivity of the water was in the thousands wow. of UCSMs. Now, they couldn't explain that. They couldn't explain how that water on the ceiling can be that electrically charged. Now, if we are dealing with poltergeist phenomena and the ability that they have of creating formings, be it different types of liquid, then maybe somehow it's electrically driven. We don't really know, but once we got, got that information and went public with it, the amount of people that contacted us from the worldwide for months and months and months we were just every single day from Mexico from from China from oh, every every single country you can well imagine were contacting us regarding the details and the data that we'd, we'd found regarding this this manifestation of water uh, because I don't believe that people have really had the opportunity of actually being there and being able to take a sample. I know that if you actually read Poltergeist Phenomena on the, the information that's around, especially on the internet, you'll come across the odd case where people have said, yes, um, some type of blood was found or some type of water or oil or plasma or all sorts of little things have been found in association with Poltergeist Phenomena, but never actually been captured and analysed. So we were very lucky, just about to have been in the right place at the right time. And we don't have an explanation for it. Northwest Water Laboratories don't have an explanation for it. And, and it was completely profound. We, we haven't got a clue actually what happened to this day. We eventually ended up having to sit down with the council and have the family relocated. They didn't want to move home, but we had to have them gain some peace because these incidents were just going on and on and they, they couldn't get any rest from it. So eventually the family were relocated and the building was left empty for quite some time. Speaking of, of getting um, samples, and you know, I could talk about the, the Rochdale case for, for hours, just uh, an amazing case. But when we were there with ghost cases, 
one of the places we visited, and Steve, you mentioned blood. Maybe I'll throw this one over to Dave, was the uh, White Hart Hotel in Utoxter, right? While we were there, um, which was supposedly haunted, members of your investigative team found what looked to be um, blood splatter on a shower curtain in, was it the Demon Room? Uh, There were a number of haunted rooms. It, it was it, it was a room which allegedly had some form of uh, paranormal activity reported. Now the thing with the case is, uh, Paul, originally we had 21 reported incidents uh, of alleged paranormal-like activity in the location. Uh, I think we were able to do away with Steve 20 of them. <laughs> yeah, well, quite a lot of them. I think so most yeah. of the, the reports we were we were able to explain, we were able to do away with, given uh, yeah, EMF, given dif- different aspects of uh, physiology again and such like. Uh, but, but this room in particular we were monitoring because apparently bloodstains were alleged to appear on the shower curtain in the bathroom. And obviously that's why we were monitoring it. It's one of them. Does it, doesn't it? I didn't think it did, but we'll monitor it anyway. I wasn't actually yeah. a case manager, so I didn't get a choice of that. Luckily, the case manager decided, yes, she did want to uh, monitor that room that night. And at a point, blood stains or red specks were found on the curtain. Yeah. Sorry, Dave, I was just going to say that. I think we did actually manage to confirm that the actual stains were blood. But as Eventually, to... yeah, we, we, we did take the we shower did. curtain away. We did take yeah. another shower curtain away with us as well to see if it was uh, anything fungal. We'd done some CSI work on the shower curtain. I think we were able to ascertain that it was some form of blood. We're not able to, at this moment, suggest if it's human blood or if it's a form of animal blood or anything else. But we were able. what we were able to do was uh, close off the area. We were able to take the shower curtain away. We checked absolutely everything that we could within the room to see if there was anything that could have caused this effect, if it could have come. I don't know. We, we even looked to see if a bird had struck the window and blood from the bird had splattered <laughs> in through the um, yeah. fan. Through the fan. But we'd done absolutely everything we, we possibly could to see what had caused this. And, and to be honest, the only thing that we could possibly come up with, either it was done purposefully by somebody. Still to this point, we, we there's only three people that we couldn't vouch for during a, a period of time when the, the room was left at em- alone and that was Mr. Kimball it was myself and it was the uh, manager of the hotel who as I say we, we, we couldn't this is yeah. why we can't say for, for definite if it was anything paranormal or not we right. don't think it was there at the start of the investigation, it definitely appeared during the investigation because it yeah. was found but three people were alone in the building at a certain given time throughout the day so well we won't it. talk it's about it. where you and I were Dave um, so yeah we, we, I think we, we could go as far as to say that we did some CSI work on it and uh, locked down a location and, and looked at the, the shower curtain in depth as I say for, for different type of funguses that may appear red that may grow in uh, moist conditions on shower curtains in the UK and uh, we've done some tests with another shower curtain as well and at this moment I think we've definitely ascertained that it was some form of blood. It was a weird case because again you can compartmentalize everything that happened that night Uh, and I know whenever you deal with something like this there's always the possibility that it's a hoax that somebody's putting one over on you Mm -hmm. Um, so as you said you've narrowed it down to it's either something genuinely weird or one of three people and I can guarantee it wasn't me and I'm I'm pretty Um, much I can guarantee it wasn't me so we know who the (laughs) one person would be
For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Dave Sattler and Stephen Mira joining us, UK paranormal investigators associated with the Unknown Phenomena Investigation Association. Now, this particular instance, is this as weird as it gets for you? Are there other cases that maybe are even stranger? We don't have much time left, but maybe we can cover a few. Yeah, yeah there have, I've been involved in a, I mean, the finding blood on the shower curtain. Yeah, I could understand. But if we have full control over the environment and we don't have other people in there uh, and certain things happen, like we had at Rochdale, then yeah, we can certainly rule out a lot of things such as hopes and fakes. I mean, the other poltergeist-related case I was involved with was, is a place in Stockport here in Mersey where a family were being plagued by poltergeist activity, two twin girls. One of them had been pushed down the stairs by, she felt hands on the back of her, push her down the stairs. She ended up breaking her ankle. Um, the radio would switch itself on. The girls were being touched on the heads and on the behinds. And on one particular occasion, the, the lounge door slammed so hard that it put a 20, I measured it, just over 26 inches cracked down the centre of the door. It was bellowed, in a sense of speaking. It had been slammed that hard. Now, I couldn't do that. You know, I, I, I don't think I could physically slam a door hard enough to, to crack a solid wood door down the centre of it. Um, the light bulbs would pop out of the holders and fly across the room. They, they had a pet dog which was always being tormented for some reason. The doorbell would ring. And on one particular occasion, as, as things got worse, the family ended up barricading themselves in their bedroom with their mother at 7 o'clock in the evening every night because they knew when darkness fell, things always got worse. And whilst we were on the investigation, things were definitely getting worse. Um, the girls ended up waking up with scratch marks on the legs and on this one particular incident uh, one particular night I ended up with a phone call around about early hours of the morning, 3.15 in the morning or something. The mother screaming and crying down the phone for us to get there as soon as we possibly could. I ended up getting there for about four o'clock in the morning. They hanging out, hanging out the bedroom window. I was trying to coax them to come down and open the front door. It took me a good 15 minutes to, to get them to come and open the front door because they were that scared of coming out of their bedroom. Anyway, eventually they did so, and, and, and on, on their way down, every single light in the house was switched on in the process, and I managed to get them to open the front door, and I would try to ask them what happened, but the mother just flung her arms around me and crying, and she was, she was a hell of a state. What happened was, uh, apparently that evening, the dog was crying downstairs, there, so they let the dog up, but the dog didn't want to go up. In fact, the dog, the dog, which was a small Scottish little white terrier, would become vicious to the point and bite your hand. Uh, it was never known to be a vicious dog, but it just did not want to go in their bedroom upstairs. So the mother decided to let the dog go back downstairs. As she entered, gone down the staircase, she got to the lounge door and realised that the lounge door was open when she'd left it closed. She, she reached in, turned the actual uh, light switch on. At that point, the light bulb jumped out a hick, went flying across the room. She panicked, she dropped the dog, and she ran upstairs. 
And during that night, it was around about uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, I think that there was a necessity for the girls to have to go to the bathroom, so they decided to go along with their mother and all head to the bathroom together. And at that point, this incident took place. They heard this thumping sound, and they looked down the staircase, and they saw an apparition of at least a six- or seven-foot apparition in a dark shape with no extremities, no fingers, no no legs. It had legs, but it didn't have feet, and it didn't have hands. As it walked up the stairs, it stamped its way up the staircase. Well, I, I don't know how they managed this. They ran back to that front bedroom, and they barricaded themselves in. They'd moved a double bed and a wardrobe and a, and a table. And I tried to move that wardrobe, and I couldn't move it, and I'm a big guy. Uh, but they managed to fling this up against them, barricade themselves in on this door uh, within seconds, thinking that this thing was going to bust through the, through the bedroom door. And it was at that point I got this phone call. The unfortunate thing is, is that things did escalate to the point where the gas was being switched on on the gas fire and on the cooker. We ended up having to put carpet tape on the cooker knobs on the gas fire because the gas kept being switched on. This was getting very dangerous. We talked about having the family relocated for, for a short length of time. We ended up having to turn to the church. A, a excellent job they did. Now, I've never been a big believer in, in, in the church and, and their capabilities of helping individuals and blessings. I think only around about 12% of them tend to be successful. But whatever they did, and they came in and they did their thing, their blessing, or whatever it was, whilst the investigator was there, whatever happened seemed to work, because since that day, they've not had a single episode ever take place, and that is just profound in itself. The family are quite happy. We see Christmas cards every year, often they've dedicated their lives to thanking me, really, in, in a sense. But, you know, it mysteriously disappeared as it, as it arrived, and that, again, was a very, very scary, profound phenomenon. So you've been involved, Steve, with two poltergeist case that yep. you know are, are not only scary but potentially quite dangerous which indicates that maybe you know there's a dark side if you will to the paranormal or at least um if not a, a purposefully dark side a, a very dangerous side which the last sort of thing i'd like to talk about quickly is the lion and swan case which we investigated when we were there and in particular the one thing which still resonates with me almost a year yeah. later there was a painting it's, you know it's not like a van gogh or something or a renoir it's it's a sort of a cheap 70s kind of knockoff sort of thing of a, a woman with a with one of her breasts exposed i i don't advise <laughs> these things but there it is uh, in <clears throat> we're getting kind of kind of raunchy here folks let's not discuss such things I'm kidding. Well, no, that's that's what the painting is. We actually we had to not black it up, but you know, sort of fade out the exposed um, area of the uh, woman. And so you were on Carol family TV there too. Yes, quite so. <laughs> so, but the legend of the painting is, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, that if if you touch the painting, if you move the painting, then mm. somebody will die. I believe that's what the um, what was reported. Dave knows a little bit more about the in depth uh, research that was carried out at the, at the London Swan. Yeah, what was the what was the legend? Legend on that painting. Yeah, the, the legend is that nobody will move this picture. We fear that uh, in the past, people uh, who have moved the photo, the, the, the picture, have become ill themselves, or family members or friends have become ill, and uh, in, in some occasions, more than once, have passed away. Again, legend, folklore, mythology. Or is it? There's the weird thing because being the dumb idiot that I am, you know, sort of the snarky skeptic, what day you and I were sitting in the basement, Dave, and I reached over, of course, and I, I moved the painting. Well, actually, um, Paul, we done scissor, paper, stone to see you, done it. <laughs> that's true. We did rock, paper, scissors to see which one of us 
would do it, and we I did. lost. So I moved the painting, and, you know, we joked about it. It's in the television episode. Dave and I had a good laugh. And there were five of us on the investigation that night. Um, you're talking to three of them now. Holly was one of the other ones, and there was a member of the UPIA, another member who we won't uh, name because I, I told him we wouldn't. Mm. But he yep. was on the investigation as well. And you guys showed up the next day because uh, we were off to another site. We were expecting he was going to be there, too. I think it was Shocklack we were going to, and he wasn't there. And we, we asked why, you know, why isn't he here? And why wasn't he there, Dave? Unfortunately, and, um, you know, it's still such a subject to this day, and, you know, we, uh, my heart goes out to him. His father passed away the, the night that the picture was moved. Yeah, same here. And be it coincidence or not, it's um, it, it's still a, huh? is it or isn't it? You know, most of, you know, my inclination is to say, well, of course, it's a horrible, tragic coincidence. But, you know, on the other hand, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty strange coincidence given the story and what we did that night and then to just have that happen. I mean, sure, things happen, but eventually you run into enough coincidences when you do these kinds of things that coincidences stop being an explanation that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, you know, it comes back to somebody said to me once, uh, a friend in the United States said to me once that when you get involved in this kind of stuff, and I guess the last question maybe I'd leave you guys with is, um, he said to me that when you get involved with this kind of stuff, you're probably in over your head, no matter how smart you are, and we're all smart guys, but no matter how smart you are or how smart you think you are or what you know, you might be dealing with things that are beyond whatever knowledge base we have, beyond our ability to control. Question I would ask you guys is, do you ever feel, because I certainly felt that way after the, the line in Swan with that, the painting and the, the death, and in Shocklack too, and in other places that I went during the course of the series, but do you guys ever feel that way? Steve, when you deal with the poltergeist stuff, Dave, when you have the time slip what what does this all mean to you what have your experiences brought to you do you feel like you know that's something that's beyond your control does it scare you what's your sort well, of ta- what's our takeaway from this for, for me i mean i was introduced to poltergeist phenomena just randomly through, through a, a news item but uh, introduced to the subject at an early age i didn't expect to uh, i thought a lot of it was you know do a rational explanations and things but it certainly proved to me that since 1995 and i've had that experience i really have delved into parapsychology even further and and, and today i'm still trying to work out how these experiences can happen without, unfortunately, uh, very good answers, unfortunately. And I think if we're going to advance this subject, because as you know, you know, psychology and parapsychology is very static. It doesn't seem to move on very quickly. Not a new material doesn't come forward very often. And I think we do need to start looking at that aspect of science in a different way uh, and maybe doing different things in a different way uh, because we've certainly exhausted we must have exhausted the normal ways we, we investigate and research this type of phenomenon because of the level we've been involved in it so we i think for, for me i mean it's, it's changed my life and i think that the reason why i, I put myself into 100 percent now is because i've experienced it firsthand i've had numerous experiences i've been in the right place at the right time and if, and if you do experience those things I think that you will start asking questions, especially about your own experiences as well. So, uh, and for Dave, I mean, like Dave's mentioned, there has been a couple of times when he has sometimes refused 
to accept the fact that it could be a paranormal experience. And uh, and, and sometimes I say, well, it is paranormal if you don't know, you know, if you can't explain it. You know, if all rational explanation is gone, then the extraordinary is the only plausible approach. And sometimes it's hard to, to accept that, you know, because you don't really know what the paranormal should really consist of. Guys, we just are getting near the wrap of this thing here. Now, obviously, we're not going to solve all the paranormal mysteries on the show, at least this particular episode, although I hope we could. But let's <laughs> me ask you separately here, Steve, what do you think we take away from this? Is this something we'll ever get solved? I think the only way we're going to ever solve it is when we start changing the ways and the methods we investigate and research this. Because, unfortunately, if to do things in a scientific manner, we restrain ourselves from, from doing the other things which might be necessary for us to get answers. Okay. What about you, Dave? A subject itself in, in the UK, uh, I mean, that, that directly involves me in the UK at the moment, is so wide and range. It, it just needs to be drawn back in a, a little bit and people need to be reminded that it's not all hey let's go out and have a spooky night uh, you know research does need to be done to to take the subject forward i don't think we're we in our lifetime are going to be able to explain most of the things that take place i would like to but i just don't think it's very likely at all i mean it could be a possibility that if we're able to explain the paranormal we could be the people who are actually bringing down the religion at the same time and that's something i wouldn't want to really do because i would get blacklisted and beaten up to a <laughs> are we even meant to resolve all these mysteries or find a solution or will unearthing one mystery finding one solution take us to another mystery well i think, I think the case the, the best case for us to say that is is the, the white heart in you toxita uh, I mentioned before about all the different things that were reported and we were able to discount. Unfortunately, we've asked, we've found more questions that need resolving and we need to spend a lot more time at the location because of the amount of things that we've come up with, unfortunately, or fortunately, as the case may be. Does it all come down to a personal thing at the end of the day, Steve? Is it maybe the paranormal is just mano y mano, us versus whatever it is, and each individual takes... It depends on how you want to perceive the paranormal. I mean, most people perceive that some type of interaction with with yourselves, you know, that you, that you go along your normal life and you may experience some things which just don't fall into a normal, you know, normality, so you end up being paranormal. However, though, there are lots of other new theories which are out there, and one of the latest ones is that paranormal phenomena is some type of energy that affects the mind and the brain into believing that you're having an experience. Now, that's a, a whole new ball game, really, we're talking about. We're talking about um, how certain energies could cause you to believe that you have those experiences because at the end of the day, your brain is everything we experience in life, touch, feel, smell and everything, it's all a matter of electrical impulses and if some, something can generate a certain amount of some form of unknown energy that can somehow adversely affect the mind and the brain into thinking it's having those experiences then uh, maybe that's another avenue we need to approach. We'll have to look at that. Let me ask you guys separately to tell us about the books and where to get a copy. Dave, Paranormal Reality Ghosts, UFOs and Pussycats can we find a copy in the U.S.? What's it fundamentally about? 
You certainly can. Uh, the book itself is much not dissimilar to Steve's. It's uh, looking at cases that I've been involved in over the past 13, 14 years. Some of them a bit light-hearted, some of them quite in-depth, uh, looking at some of the hoaxes that we've been uh, privy to. And uh, you can find that at www.blurb.com or you can find a link to it directly on the UPIA homepage, www.upia.co.uk. Uh, there's a little image and a button which will take you directly to uh, blurb.com. It's available, uh, I don't know what it is in, in US dollars, it's 4.95 in uh, UK pounds and then it's postage and packing on top of that. But I'm sure if you buy minus these book at the same time, the price of postage and packing will come right down. <laughs> and you'll get double the pleasure. Steve, what about your book, Strange Happenings, Memoirs yep. of a Paranormal Investigator? I guess that's kind of almost like a book one, right? It, it is, actually, because I am actually working on the second book. You know, it's kind of going in 10-year episodes, actually, at the moment. And um, what I've done is I've taken the... I mean, I've been involved in so many cases over the years, but the first book consists of about 22 of the best investigations I was involved in in the first 10 years of investigating and researching this phenomenon. It's a little bit more of a scientific stance on, on that book um, regarding the research and, uh, and what was undertaken to come, to come to the conclusions we did. The book is around about 224 pages. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit larger. Um, the price on, on that particular book is £6.95 in British pounds. Well, it's available at the same place, exactly the same place, which is Blurb, which is www.blurb.com. It can be obtained through their website. And again, we've got links up on our uh, Facebook site and web pages to, to obtain those books as well. You know what? We also have links on our site. So when we mention the books at thepowercast.com and our forums, forum.thepowercast.com, you click on the links, you go right to the book ordering page, and the amount of money will be in U.S. dollars for the U.S. or whatever country you're in. Paul Kimball, yep. before we let you leave the door with Elvis, <laughs> what are you working on? What's going to come from Paul Kimball in the next few months? Well, I just finished the uh, final post audio on my first feature film, actually, which is about vampires. So there you go. Even when I move into the realm of fiction, I can't get away from the paranormal. And uh, <laughs> now that that's done, I'll take a month off to do some paperwork. And then it's uh, probably back to um, a combination of documents documentaries, get some documentaries and some television shows coming up, and also a uh, feature film. My next feature film is a science fiction film that I co-wrote with the late Mac Tonys before he passed away. So it'll be one of Mac's, based on a short story he did, so it'll be one of the last things, along with his upcoming crypto-terrestrial book, which is out this month, which I recommend everybody buys. It's going to be a big one, big, big book. That feature film that he and I co-wrote before he died. So, uh, so that's something that I'm really looking forward to over the next year. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dave Sadler, Steve Mera, and especially Paul Kimball. Thank you all for joining us this week on the Paracast. My pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks, Gene. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.